Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here in Doha, Qatar. We're recovering the Doha International Maritime Defense Exhibition and Conference, DIMDEX. 2018 and our coverage here is sponsored by Dimdex and we're over here at the Rheinmetall stand or I should say uh, the Rheinmetall Barzan Holdings uh, stand to talk to Fabian Oxner who is uh, the head of uh, business development and strategy uh, at Rheinmetall uh, Air Defense. Uh, Fabian, uh, I want to ask you about the Hellgun uh, in a minute that uh, is, a, is a Swiss-German partnership but tell us a little bit about uh, the relationship between Rheinmetall and Barzan. Barzan Holdings obviously uh, uh, the Qatar Ministry of Defense's sort of technology fund, but tell us a little bit about the joint venture partnership you guys have. Okay, so uh, a couple of months ago we started uh, with uh, Barzan Holdings to discuss about uh, the vision here to bring technology into Qatar. Obviously being a technology-driven company, Rheinmetall is, uh, that is uh, a match from the very beginning. So the business setup was then to build, to form a joint venture. Uh, where Rheinmetall brings in all sorts of technologies that Rheinmetall holds in the entire company uh, and bring this together uh, with, in a joint venture that we have now formed called uh, uh, Rheinmetall Barzan Advanced Technology or RBAT as we call it that is a locally registered uh, company that is owned by Barzan of course and we are a minority shareholder of that. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about this laser gun, because lasers uh, are very cool. Everybody's always talking about lasers, but lasers are always five years away. You know, it's, it's sort of like a mirage. It's always just out of reach. But everybody says that we're at an inflection point, and you and I were talking earlier that um, all the cards are lining up for operationally deployable lasers. And so let's talk a little bit about the Hell Gun, which is a great high-energy laser gun. I think it's really, really cool, uh, with both Swiss DNA in it, uh, but also a little Qatari DNA and then German DNA uh, also. Tell us, as you look at your air defense vision, where lasers fall in it. Because for some people, it's clearly the future, whereas for others, you know, there are still some challenges in applying this laser technology against targets in a reliable way in all weather conditions. Talk to us a little bit about how this laser fits into your air defense vision. Okay, so the, the laser itself uh, as a weapon for an air defender, and I'm talking as an air defender, is of course a dream to have. In the end, as an air defender, I dream to have three possible effectors. That would be a regular air defense missile, that would be an air defense gun, and that would be a high energy laser. Because the variety of targets, particularly in these days, calls for a variety of options to answer them. So it's not always good to have a $5 million missile if you fight against a $1,000 target. So this variety calls for technologies like that. So, and as you said in the beginning, some people said laser is the technology of the future and it always will be. And that's true for the last 20 years. But as you said, it's starting to come around, driven by the availability of commercial off-the-shelf lasers, welding lasers predominantly, that deliver acceptable levels of quality. That means the beam quality uh, with acceptable levels of power. So what we can get today off the shelf is a laser 10 kilowatt with, a, with a, an, a beam quality less than two. And that's the starting point. That's when it came around. So by the end of, uh, of the, 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 the zero years, so 2009, a five kilowatt laser became available. That's when we started to 
when it started to be interesting for air defense, because air defense takes down takes part in a distance, couple of kilometers, so you need uh, some power. We adopted this one, this this first five kilowatt lasers, and started to test it against aerial targets. And we did a number of tests, uh, partially Rheinmetall funded, partially German MOD funded, and brought the technology until 2013 up to what we call a technology readiness level of six. Mm -hmm. And this makes it really interesting here for Qatar. If you want somebody that wants to have technology in his own country, you have two ways. Either you really develop something or you reinvent the wheel. Most of the activities is I have a system here, I bring it to Qatar and I start to reinvent it and make it locally like that. No, no real challenge, nothing really aimed because it was already there in the front. This here is a TRL-6, that means we have quite a, a, a long way to go until it's a TRL-9 operationally usable. It needs to be specified, needs to be qualified, developed and qualified. Three major steps from here that need to be that we need to go. So this is a perfect point, entry point for somebody who wants technology. So if we take this foundation, put it in with some money that is now required to get it to TRL9, we start at, at the also almost equal level, we start to develop 789 and we can do that here. And this is the beauty about it. It's not reinventing the wheel. It's really inventing something new. You generate new foreground IPRs that belong to equal shares to Rheinmetall and to the Qatari organization, whoever is then the partner in this business endeavor. So that's why such a technology that's not finished, but needs a step to go, is perfect for their vision to have technology here in Qatar as well. Everybody has a different approach in looking at lasers. You guys are using bundled, and not just bundled lasers, in this case, three 10 kilowatt lasers, but also a very distributed architecture in terms of how you plan to take out targets. Talk to us about why you went to this multi-barrel approach, if you will, or multi-laser approach, and then that distributed architecture. That's the first question, and then I want to ask you about the challenges of getting all these beams to hit the same spot at the same time. Okay, so the technology that uh, Rheinmetall owns and uh, we have invented is called beam superimposing. Meaning, as you said, you fire different beams from the same platform or even from various platforms to the same target. And then you superimpose these beams one on each other. But you have to, it's about a, a quarter that this, the size of the beam is when it hits the target. So you start to lay quarters on quarters and you have to be very, very precise. Just a radian off, uh, um, one of the beams is off. So it is a, a technology that is very demanding. It has its advantages as well. It came from the fact that, of course, in the beginning, a 5 and then a 10 kilowatt laser was available. So the idea was either we combine them in the system and fire one beam. This is possible. This is what most of the other uh, what of the competitors are doing. Uh, or try, let's try to do this on the target. And we went the way to try to do it on the target and we managed to do so. We have proven in our tests uh, with five 10 kilowatt lasers that we were able on a, a thousand meter distance to weld right through a 10 millimeter steel beam. 
and this was really phenomenal. I mean, it just from God's hand, it started to glow and then to burn and it cut it right through. Meaning that we really have managed to superimpose those five beams from two platforms onto one target. Of course, the target was not moving at that time, but this moving is then a part of the overall air defense problem that we solve with our guns anyway. So the guns down to the counter-rocket artillery and mortar capability had been phenomenal, had to be phenomenally uh, precise. And this precision we use as a basis to now introduce the laser so we don't have to reinvent all this. This is why this gun here very much looks like the, the, the regular gun with its barrel taken out and the laser plugged in. And in essence, it is like that. In the end, maybe once it's finalized in development, it will not look the same. But the analogy to have the overall system and then just merely change the effector is absolutely true. And that's the foundation that we have. And, and you don't really have to lead the target because with a light beam, you don't really have to worry. Whatever you're pointing at, you're hitting. That is absolutely correct, but the problem is not the lead angle calculation. We know that from the gun point of view, and you always have the time of flight that you have to deal with. So you always predict. With lasers, you don't predict. But what you have to do is you have to track the target with the ultimate accuracy, because if you don't track, if you do not track good enough, and this is a window less than one milliradian where you have to keep the target in all time. The laser then reduces this to about a quarter of a milliradian optically. It's coarse tracking that the air defense system is doing and fine tracking that is done then by the laser itself. So that are two steps. So the air defense system always holds it in the one milliradian window and the laser then does the fine tracking. So it blocks the laser beam exactly on the point on the target and keeps it there for the duration of what we call the dwelling time, as long as you are able to lace into the target. And um, you are, in, in the architecture that you're planning, this is more an anti-UAV system, anti-air, like talk to us about where this is fitting and against what types of targets, because when you go over to uh, Crossmify Nexter, uh, they have a Gepard there, which normally you wouldn't be seeing, but now has, you know, was acquired by the Brazilians and actually has regained a lease on life looking at large, mid, even small UAV systems that it can very, very easily target and shoot down. It's, it's funny that you mention it because it's, uh, the Gepard was used for maneuver shore out. So the protection of troops on the move. This has gone away for the last two or three decades. Now all of a sudden people realize that if, even if you have air superiority, there is a possibility for the enemy to launch from inside uh, small targets, UAVs, uh, rockets, mortars, all this kind of stuff. So they have now become air defense targets. They come through the air, we can detect and defeat them. So let's use this capability to protect again the troops on the move. And recent conflicts in Donbass, in the Yemen, uh, in Syria have shown that uh, this is a serious issue and can be, uh, it, can, it can change the outcome of a conflict. And that wasn't realized like this before. I mean, I, I was preaching that for many, many years. People said, go away. We don't need that. Now they come back and they even uh, get out Gepards. Uh, we have concepts like that. Maneuver shore route is coming back in, in force. But not only that, protection of vital assets and critical points, particularly in the conflict of Yemen, 
uh, it, has, it has been shown that if your Patriot layer has a leak, and this can always happen for whatever reason, you need a second line of defense close to where it counts. And this is what we are doing down here, showing this layered air defense approach where you have a last ditch defense. And the last ditch can be a laser, a last ditch can be a gun, best is the two of them. So you have missiles for the, for the further out for area protection. If it comes to protection of vital assets, critical points, then you, you go to systems like this. And that's why they are coming back. And systems that have worked in the past can be modified that they will work in the future again. So this mobile Shorat uh, is driven as well by the United States who have a clear requirement for that and other nations that follow suit, uh, trying to protect their troops on the move again from things that come above. From um. Um, one of the things that you uh, mentioned was um, the U.S. side has been working for some time on atmospherics and overcoming that, overcoming it either with power or with adaptive optics. And there are folks on the U.S. side who say, look, there is virtually no situation where we don't feel that there would be a laser that can get through. On the other hand, there are still challenges. How long how do you guys approach that problem and how long do you think it'll be before, whether through adaptives or through power, that you'll be able to use a, a laser through heavy rain, through fog, through a lot of atmospheric conditions that right now render a laser, maybe if not inefficient, close to inefficient? Our concept here is to have the variety of effectors. If you have a laser, and only a laser, you have all your eggs in this one bag. And then whether you can get through rain or through fog or sandstorm or whatever remains to be seen. Some people may find some tricks, some ways to get through it, but it's always, it's always unclear what it can do and what not. If you have an intransparent atmosphere, there's only one system, or there's two systems that can deal with intransparent atmospheres, and that's the gun can always deal with it, and that's missiles that are using radar technology. Not IR, but radar technology. They can fly through dense fog, rain, whatever, they can do their mission. So it's if you expect that you are attacked in bad weather conditions, you better have a shooter grid on the ground that can deal with that. So rather than going, trying to get out of the laser, whatever is possible, uh, have a, a philosophy about it, better take another effector that can deal with it. So you have two advantages. The gun really is the last ditch. It's a hard stop at the end of an, of an incoming missile, rocket, uh, drone or whatever. But before you can try with the laser. So you try with the laser until there's a point of no return and then you fire a gun burst and then you got rid of the target. Cost you something to fire a gun burst almost cost you nothing to, get to, to fire a laser burst, but the laser is expensive to buy, to buy vis a vis the gun. And if you have missiles on top of it, so you have a complete mixture. You can always analyze the situation you're in and you have the right answer. You don't need five millions to down a thousand dollars. You can always look for the, for the correct answer. And this is the variety and the versatility that you need to have as an air defender in the future. So we deal, we deal with it 
in this aspect that we combine various shooters rather than trying to convince people that physics are not physics. <laughs> um, and one of the other things about power, uh, because I want to go to another question, but just, just to tell our audience that when it comes to powering this, a Volkswagen Golf motor will actually power um, this system and provide the laser energy to come through it. A 10 kilowatt laser needs to fire 10 kilowatts to the target, so it needs 10 kilowatts to get out of the aperture. It needs about 40 to 50 in order to uh, do the powering of the laser, the cooling, the driving it, everything. So it's about a factor of four to five. So there you are with the, Volks, with the Volkswagen Golf engine that drives you one, one module of 10 kilowatts. So it's not, it's not overly, this, this holds for continuous lasing. If you need to go into a vehicle where you have limited space, then you could even go to store your power in capacitors, uh, batteries, and then use that. But then you cannot continuously lace. So what I said holds on this laser gun here. It will continuously lace as long as you want to. And, and uh, um, that's true, it's more expensive, but if you add up ammunition and everything else, net-net over life cycle, one could imagine that you actually have a benefit here. Now, uh, you're a proud uh, Swiss Army uh, trooper. Uh, you, you, know, you were saying that you're an engineer, but you're a soldier first. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about the Swiss DNA that's in this, and talk to us a little bit about what German DNA in it, okay. and also now there's Qatari DNA in it also uh, em emerging. Not yet, emerging, emerging. So the status that you see right here is indeed a mixture of Swiss DNA and German DNA. In Switzerland we have done air defense system uh, for vital asset protection since the mid-50s. Uh, through Ehrlichan? Through Ehrlichan. So this, the heritage is the Ehrlichan air defense system, Skyguard, twin guns, in about 40 countries worldwide, so has been for a long time the system to have and uh, still remains in many countries as it comes back uh, given today's threats being more and more important again to have answers that before were thought okay missiles will do the job but it's not like that anymore many people that held on to the guns are now happy that they held on to it so we do air defense system the, the top level of the air defense system is uh, sky shield able to defeat rockets, artillery and mortars, the CRM system that has been deployed with the German Air Force, developed and deployed, developed the Delta development for counter-AM and deployed with the German Air Force. It was due to go to Afghanistan, didn't go so far, now the sensors are in Mali, so it's deployed and, and operated, uh, as I said, in Germany. This is the Swiss DNA, an overall system from search to defeat the whole chain from one company. That's essentially what the Swiss DNA is. The German DNA is the laser technology that's in there. German, the German subsidiary of Rheinmetall, Rheinmetall Weapons Munition in Unterlust, they have uh, invested into laser technology for the last 25, 30 years. So they have been always at the forefront of technology. We met each other, <laughs> funny enough, on a conference somewhere, in, I believe in, in the UK, the guy who was responsible for the laser in, in Germany, and I was at the same conference. I was there to, to figure out what's going on, what our people, it's about time to, to get into this business or not, and he was there because he was interested uh, in, in what, what the competition had to say and what the users had to say. So we met there, <laughs> figured out that he had the laser and I had the system, 
And about one and a half years later, we started the first demonstration in Switzerland of this five kilowatt laser. So that's how we met up and how we married the, the foundation of their technology if it comes to laser. And they do the laser. They, we buy a laser these days from, uh, from a company that produces welding lasers. And they come in as standard modules. And then we do the telescope. So the guys from Rheinmetall Weapons Munition in Germany, they are responsible to produce the laser and to leave it out of the beam. We are responsible to do the air defense job around it, to do the beam direction, to make sure we follow this one milliradian window, keep the target in there. And if we are able to do so, our partners from Germany are able to then look, do the fine tracking do the beam forming and everything adaptive of the soul there uh, in order to have to maximize the effect of the laser. So that's how the two DNAs match up. How much time do you have to pick a spot on a target to hit? Because if you're going to direct several beams, say two of these batteries onto the same exact point, right, that you have six beams, three, three, and two from converging points, and you said it's the size of a quarter, and everybody has got to be exactly on the spot. This is the kind of precision problem that Swiss and Germans probably get excited about solving. <laughs> you can go forever on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. How to keep them occupied for hours. But exactly how small of a time window do you have to pick that ideal point that you're trying to burn through? I mean, you don't pick it. It's picked by the system itself. So you, as, a, as an operator, you don't even have the time. If you have a, a rocket that flies in, you have only seconds to make a decision from, I see it's a target coming in, I really need to do something about it, and then I need to ID it, and then I'll have to give the system the freedom to engage. That's only a couple of seconds, uh, not more than that. And if it comes to the laser, you want to do this as quick as possible in order to allow the laser maximum dwell time. So this is all out, completely automated. You don't have to do this as an operator. It's the algorithms in the system will pick the right spot, depending on the target that you are following, and then try to maximize the dwell time by as quickly as possible, go through your decision tree, and then press and tell the system, okay, let's go, I want to I wanna down it. But, but even for the system, it's making that calculation in like a second. Milliseconds. So this, this is autom this automated uh, algorithms that cannot take any time and they will not take any time. We don't have time in this business. You have more time if it comes to a mortar, for instance. There you have some time, but this is not the critical target. The critical target is a very fast incoming rocket on a, on a low QE that uh, you see in about four or five kilometers. And... 10 seconds later it hits. So you have a very short window to detect, identify, and then start to laze it. So I know, what kind of dwell time do you need? I know that it depends on whether, for example, it's a lightly made unmanned vehicle or a heavily made incoming rocket or missile that's got some substance to it. That's the first question. And second, how easily easy is it to spoof? You know, for example, if you put reflective mis uh, a coating or an some kind of coating on the missile, does that spoof the laser? I can answer both questions in one answer. We have done some tests, static tests on the ground, where we put a, a, a mortar that we polished completely, 
uh, and rotated it. And then we lasered it once with uh, 30 kilowatt and once with, uh, with 10 kilowatt and once with 50 kilowatt, just to see the difference. First of all, all of them went after a while because if you cannot really spoof the laser, the smallest bit of dust will be the first point where it starts to, uh, the material starts to evaporate and from there on it just goes. So if you have, if you have enough power, anything, you cannot reflect a high power laser. Your mirror will go after a certain time. Uh, dwell time, we had this, uh, is a 60 millimeter mortar that we exploded. One was the 10 kilowatt took us 12 seconds and the 50 kilowatts, three seconds. So this, this is what we have done in testing. We have not done testing of real mortars in flight because of the range restrictions that we had, but it's about that it depends on the power. If you can increase your power, then you get less, but you have always a couple of seconds at least. So five to 10 seconds for regular targets will be the minimum that you need as a dwell time in order to ignite, to heat it off, up enough that it ignites or uh, just ceases to work. If you are, depends what you're what taking, what target you have. Fabian, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure and best of luck on the program. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hope to see you again. I look forward to uh, see that. <laughs>